We've talked about a lot of changes that have happened in the marketplace over the last year, but one thing we haven't talked about are the changes to human behavior and how that translates to the way that people want to live in their homes and frankly, the way they have to live in their homes. On today's show, we bring on an architect who's talking about the human psychology and human behavior changes that have happened because of the pandemic and how manufacturers can adapt the products and their marketing initiatives to be relevant to new home construction and the homes that people want to live in and the ways that they want to renovate. It's a very thought-provoking show that will get you thinking about changes that you need to be making to your brand. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Smarter Building Materials Marketing Podcast, helping you find better ways to grow leads, sales, and outperform your competition. All right, everybody, welcome to Smarter Building Materials Marketing, where we believe your online presence should be your best salesperson. I am Zach Williams, and we've got an excellent show lined up for you today. We've got Dan Swift, who's the president and CEO of BSB Design. They're an architecture firm with over 170 people on their team. He's an award-winning architect with decades of experience in the single-family, multifamily, and mixed-use spaces. Dan, for our listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the industry. Okay. Well, I will. Well, thanks, Zach. How I got in the industry is in 1987, I finished my degree work at Iowa State University. And at that time, to become a licensed professional in the architecture space, I needed two degrees, and I had both those degrees. And I knew this is a true story. It'll it'll sound not true because it's like, really, who made this up? My father was a commercial contractor. I grew up laying block and tending block and mix and mortar. And I was in the field a lot. I was from from a very young age. I mean, quite literally from the time I was 11 years old, I was in the field with him. To the extent they would let me on the job sites and do what I wanted to do. And I loved being out there. But I knew from the time about that age that I did not want to be in the trades and I did not want to work outside in the cold. I didn't want to frame houses. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be the guy that designed them. And I was fascinated with the blueprints that were laying all over our house because, you know, my dad was a commercial contractor and I'm like, I want to be that guy, but I didn't find those buildings interesting. I didn't find those, those buildings fascinating, but I found housing fascinating Hmm. and the only firm that I had ever studied was Jack Bloodgood's firm, who start, what started in 1969 on the foundational thought that everyone deserves a home designed by an architect. And at the 1960s, you know, that may sound odd now, but back then that didn't happen. Only very affluent, wealthy people could afford an architect. Production homes were not designed by architecture firms. But Jack felt the need that if he was going to have an impact on the world, make a difference in the world, he'd have to touch more of the built environment than most architects would ever had considered. And in 1987, in this very kind of, I suppose, <laughs> free will kind of mode, and during a recession, I, I send a resume to Jack and said, I've always wanted to be in the housing business. I wanted to be an architect in the housing business. You're the only one that does that, and you have such influence across the nation. I would love to come work for you. And in 1987, I was hired. And in 2014, I became the president of of BSB and then and the CEO and and now also the chairman of our board. So that's that's how I got into housing. That's pretty neat. Yeah. You, so you worked your way all the way up. Yeah, I did. I graduated in 1987, moved to Florida in 1988 with the then one partner, one of the partners who later became the president, Doug Sharp, and started my career there from the ground up. 
And how many employees do you have? We have 170 employees. I was checking out your site. You all do everything from residential, multifamily, even student housing, even some, it looks like you do just about everything. Yeah. You know, probably the best way to phrase this, if it has a bed in it, we do it unless it's a prison. <laughs> so, you know, single family detached that's selling for $60,000 to, you know, $6 million homes to high rise buildings and, you know, they're, that are condominiums or apartments or, or, you know, the student housing space is a different kind of manifestation of how people live. But I like to say that we're experts in how people live. So we apply that methodology and thinking to to every one of, of the opportunities. And, and, and I don't necessarily think, honestly, Zach, that we're architects. Hmm. We use design and design principles of balance, scale, rhythm, proportion, order, and the process that design takes you through, which is the, the most nonlinear process that anyone could, could go through because it's a very much back and forth kind of collaboration and try to make that complicated thing look very simple. But what we're doing really is we're creating performing assets for developers that need to yield a very prescribed outcome for them, in whether it's rent rates or, or, or sales rates. So our understanding, you know, aside from what consumers are looking for in homes, is really what developers are looking for out of the asset. Now, in the end, it has to be beautiful architecture. There's no doubt about that. And I think all of my competitors do beautiful architecture. I just think we do beautiful performing assets wrapped in, in a veil of great architecture. You know, one thing you were sharing with me before we got into the show was, or started recording, was you all had a pretty big shift, you know, going through the Great Recession. Yes. You know, you, can, you, can you talk a little bit about that story and what, you know, your relationship with your partners and what transformed and transpired out of that? Yeah, I will. And hopefully the, the timeline will make sense. So, in, you know, in 1987 till about 1999, BSB was a fairly, you know, small firm, you know, pretty typical architecture firm, you know, three offices. You know, it's not a disparaging comment, but strategically our business practice was let's put an office where Jack has a home. Um, so we had an office in Boston because <laughs> he had a home in Vermont that he loved to spend the summers in. And we had an office here in Des Moines because that's where the company started because Jack was recruited as a New Yorker to move from New York City to Des Moines to become the design editor of Better Homes and Gardens magazine, which later became a consumer magazine, to then start his own firm. And then Tampa because he had a home in Naples. Hmm. And, you know, they were all great markets for housing and certainly production housing. So, you know, they weren't, you know. It wasn't willy-nilly kind of strategy, but it wasn't, you know, this, like, I'm going to grow the firm because I want to grow it. I want to grow the firm where I want to live. And, uh, you know, a lot of sole proprietors and, and closely held companies operate that way. And so we, 1999 comes around and Jack decides he's going to retire. So 1999 is kind of a pivotal moment for the firm. Uh, we decided we want to become the biggest player in the housing space. And flat out, that was just by design. Doug Sharp and Doug Buster had bought... Jack's firm, and and we went from thirty people. So this is this is a meteoric rise from nineteen ninety nine to two thousand five. We went from about thirty five people in three offices to three hundred and twenty five people, and fifteen offices. Wow! And we work with and still do the top twenty five public home builders, the largest real estate investment trust that do apartments, and the top eight private student housing organization, and then everything that touches housing. Uh, we also did a lot of restaurant work, still do some restaurant work, but we did a ton of restaurant work in Orlando and, you know, thought that, you know, we somehow, we must have hung the moon. We can decide how bright we're going to make it. And, and at any given moment, all of a sudden the wheels come off in 2008. 
Yeah, you know, I am an architect. I, I still actually draw with a pen, although everyone in our business uses, and my team all use computers. I, I don't. I still draw buildings by hand and sketch them to somebody to take, you know, to put into, into a model. But I think through the lens of the developer and through the lens of the consumer, and there's a phrase that's used in, in innovation that is the rate of innovation of any given industry, and it's called clock speed. The clock speed at Google X is, in some cases, probably measured in seconds. Hmm. I mean, the rate they innovate, the, the rate that they create something new that wasn't there, the, way that they, the, the rate they transform how things work or how they operate is stunning. In housing, the kit of parts has not changed in decades. So the rate of innovation, the clock speed in housing relative to how people live in homes has not changed. So what happened is, and this is a relative point, in, in, in a healthy housing economy as a home builder, and again, these are round numbers, you're going to get about five used homes in your market sold for every one new home. Your biggest competitor as a home builder is the used housing market. They got way more of it than you do. And way more people move to established neighborhoods than they do to new ones by a five to one ratio. Well, unfortunately, in 2008, that number became about 60 to one. Wow. In some zip codes, and we measure it by zip code quite literally, was 100 to one. So you just gave me a smaller house with the same kit of parts that you've been giving me all this time. And I can buy this foreclosure thing that's last year's model. And it's beautiful. It was designed at the peak of the market. It's stunning in every way you can describe stunning. I'm just going to go ahead and get that. And so I went on a personal journey and I've always wanted to impact the clock speed in housing because I believe in my study of human behavior. And I do work with a team of neuroscientists out of uh, Michigan to understand how the brain works and perceive space and why people do what they do and how they perceive architecture and, and moreover, why they buy things. And, you know, all this is relative because, you know, I'm, I'm a consultant in helping people design things that will sell more. And so uh, invest a lot of energy in my personal time and my own, my own time in the firm's time and created a concept in 2008 that BSP trademarked. We own, we copyright the things we can copyright called the thoughtful home and the architecture of human peak performance. And since 2008, that has been my mission, my passion and I speak about it all over the country that that the assignment shouldn't be design me a building with some pre-described sellable square footage model or a sell rentable square footage model what human beings really want is design me a building where I could actually increase my human peak performance I could become a better person and I would live longer I mean I wonder if that was the design assignment for real and I'll reflect on a couple of key data points that help, help create what we'll call the new American spaces. The spaces people would want in a home, the new kit of parts that they would want if they knew they could have them, if they knew they would even exist. But because builders, you know, love data and none of these spaces have ever been created before, they're like, well, how do we know they're going to sell? How can we trust you? Right, right. And so I came up with these three tenants that every home should be easy, relaxing, and rejuvenating. And rejuvenating means to be made young again. Hmm. And so on that premise, to be made young again, is what, what, what a home and could a home do to actually really do that? 
So I'll give you a couple of data cuts that are really important that led me to some decisions about how I design buildings from 2008 and beyond. And how we tested it in 2009 with one of the largest builders in the country in, in Indianapolis in a very constrained market. And when those buildings were designed and then built, they outpaced the market four to one at more money than anyone thought they would ever sell for because you could not wow. compare them. This was the overarching goal. Why would I want to buy a home that's just the same as a used home? You know, why do we treat new homes with impunity like they're just newer used homes? Why I would want to buy something that is better than the used thing. That's what other industries do, right? Mm-hmm. Used is used and great. And we can certify it and do all that, but it's not new. It doesn't feel like new. It doesn't look like new. It doesn't act like new. Housing didn't do that. And so a couple data cuts. One, 28% of all partners in the United States, regardless of age, do not sleep in the same bedroom. So where does he go? Because hmm. they don't sleep in the same bedroom. He's going somewhere else because it ain't her. As we <laughs> age, that number grows exponentially. Where's he go? So I'll leave the names of the builders out. But they're in the, they're in the, you know, the, the 55 plus category. And I said, so where do you, where do you, what do you do? Well, we make one of the second bedrooms bigger. And I said, so it's the analogy of, well, you know, he's not going to be able to sit at the big kid table during Thanksgiving. We'll put him at the card table, but we'll put a really nice cloth on top of it. We got to do better than that. I mean, why wouldn't you be acknowledging the fact that these people don't sleep in the same bedroom, but we design the building as if they do. You didn't even listen to them. This is not even how I live in the house, but because nobody cares, I just have to deal with it on my own. The second piece of this is that bedrooms are not designed for sleeping. Ask any architect in the world, why do you design a bedroom the way you do? And it's because it fits this furniture in here. It fits a bed, it fits a dresser. I know where the TV is going to go. And I know I have to have egress and light near. That's it. It's not designed for sleeping. 60% of Americans driving on the road right now are driving effectively intoxicated from the lack of restful sleep. Every hour of every day in the United States, one person will die in a traffic fatality from a lack of restful sleep. It is the number one health crisis in the United States. The phrase, I'll sleep when I die, is true because you will die sooner from the lack of restful sleep. One of my favorite books is Why We Sleep and Why We Don't Rejuvenate, Why We Don't Be Made Young Again, is because we don't get restful sleep. And bedrooms themselves need to have three components in them to provide the opportunity for restful sleep. Perfect temperature between 58 and 62 degrees. Your body needs to be at that temperature gradient. Perfect darkness, meaning you could not see your hand type of darkness. Whether you're asleep, whether you're in REM sleep or not, or whatever stage of sleep you're in, in your own circadian rhythm, the eyes can still see. And our eyelids are so thin that any amount of light, particularly LED light, which is horrible for the brain, by the way, it's bad for the mitochondria, should be eliminated from the room and all darkness should be the only thing that's constant in the room. So you have the opportunity for restful sleep. And the last is perfect air. The reason we all wake up in the morning somewhat groggy, somewhat with that kind of scratchy dry throat is our HVAC systems are designed to work as a building, as a unit. First thing we do when we go to bed is we shut the door. Perfect air stopped. Hmm. And the imperfect air that's coming from the other room into my room now, because now it's, now it's compromised. I'm not getting fresh air as fast as I should. I'm not getting perfect air. And if you had those three things, you would provide a building that would create the opportunity for restful sleep. I'll give you another data cut that I found really interesting that resonates with a lot of people. Now, it doesn't mean everyone wants a pet wash in their house because it doesn't mean that. 
In 2015, so six years ago, in an $80 billion industry, Americans spent $515 million, so over a half billion dollars, on pet costumes for Halloween. The point being is that, listen, these guys don't care anything about Halloween. <laughs> they don't even know it's existing. They don't get to eat candy. Why would we put them in Halloween costumes? And what it says is, you're part of our family. You make me more complete. I want you to feel part of this situation with me. And so how did housing solve that? And so based on that concept of all these data cuts, and there's several more, I mean, I, I could go on and on and on, they'd be exhaustive. But it taught me that, that there are things that have to happen in the house that aren't happening now because houses do not transform people's lives. And I'll give you a perspective on that from how the brain works and, and kind of my simple way to describe this. There's two sides of our brain. There's the reflexive side and the reflective side the autopilot and the rational side. All of us live and make decisions about purchases in the reflexive brain. So think about anything that you've bought in the last six months, the last six days, the last six hours, and you know, from, from a pen all the way to a new coat to you know, a new pair of shoes, you bought that and your reflexive mind leaned you into buying that because you believed it would make you a better person. This is a better pen. This is a better coat. Yeah. Makes me look better. I love the way this makes me look. I love the way it makes me then feel. Uh, I have a six-year-old, and every speech I've given around the country, I use her as the example because we were all there, and I, 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 I love this, this concept of, you know, I, I'm really a 14-year-old boy stuck in a 57-year-old body, and I never lost that kind of enthusiasm for, for you know, how, how children see the world. And as a designer, you kind of want to keep that fresh set of eyes, is, you know, this kind of always wonder and, you know, what it could be, and you don't want to tell somebody to tell you that you can't do it. So it's not that I haven't grown up, but, you know, I still keep that kind of oh, I hear feeling. You. I think um, it's great. And so, you know, she got a new pair of tennis shoes and we all know what happened. She ran screaming through the house and jumping and, and in her heart, not in her, even in her brain, although we have five brains, your, your brain, your heart, your spine, your gut and your skin. In fact, there's 260 million first neurons in our skin that are 200 times faster at processing information than our, than our brain and our skull. And people don't trust that. That's a whole other matter. But so in her heart and her brain, she believes she's faster and could jump higher. Those shoes transformed her. And the problem with housing, in my view, from, from an outsider looking in as, a, as an insider, guiding folks to when someone moves in this house, were they truly transformed? Was their life truly made better? And to answer that question is, how do they move through the house? And so I came up with what I'll call five tenants to measure the effectiveness of your house working for you as a tool and as a transformative vehicle. And so what's it like when you go to work? If you have a pet, where do you put it? Do you put it in a crate in the middle of the living room? Do you stick it in the second bedroom? Is it in the laundry room that wasn't designed for it? Can they get outside? Can they get light? Can they get air? Can they get water? I mean, I didn't say they wanted a pet wash, but if I have one, what am I going to do with it? Does this run free in the house? I mean, maybe it does. I don't know. But I mean, what am I going to do with it? What, what am I do with all these people that are trying to get out of the house? I mean, is that easy to do? I mean, where are all our backpacks and all our stuff? And, and can I even get in the garage? And most access points from kitchen to garage are like the back alley of some New York street. I mean, they're not pleasant spaces and, and, and <laughs> they're real. awful. You know, you're walking through some laundry room, stepping over crap and you're like, this is a train wreck. This doesn't feel good. This doesn't feel transformative. Conversely, what's it like when you get home? I mean, you just left this world. Do you want to go into this oasis and be be again transformed and rejuvenated and relaxed and, and you walk into another train wreck. 75% of all domestic altercations and, and arguments occur within 15 minutes of arriving home. 
neuroscience data cut that's indisputable because the people at home aren't ready for the people coming home. They're not ready for that transition to occur. And that transition is important. One of the new spaces we created on that data cut was called, it's called the owner's entry. Now, a lot of home builders have had owner's entry. We created our very first one at BSB in 1995 in the production home builder space because at that time, I didn't know the neuroscience data as to why transitions are important, why those moments of clarity become important, and how architecture can lead you there. But that owner's entry was designed because we would create all this beautiful space in the front door for when our friends come over, but I don't walk in there. Right. I mean, what makes me feel like I walked into a special place? That's why I bought the house. I wanted, I wanted it to transform me. So we created the concept of the owner's entry. And now, it's, now it's become much deeper, much more thoughtful, you know, back to the thoughtful home. And, and so there's three things that have to happen in an owner's entry to make that transition work. So there isn't a domestic dispute or an altercation or, you know, I can't wait to tell you how bad my day was. You know, human beings, have, unfortunately, have a lot of negative thoughts. And the first thing they want to see from their spouse or their partner is, Tell me about your day. Well, it was awful. Wait, wait a minute. Wait, my day was way more worse than yours. Um, and, you know, then the fight starts, right? <laughs> yep. and because we're like, you know, we have to top each other as opposed to I'm going to leave the world I left behind me. That transitional moment, that transformative moment is important. And the brain needs two things. Time needs about 10 to 15 seconds to reset. It needs a, a bite of food, not a, not a whole meal, a bite of food and a drink of water. So at every owner's entry, I encourage our clients, provide me the opportunity where they can get a bite of food and a drink of water. Reload the brain, reload the chemistry, give me a chance to breathe, make it a transition point that everyone knows I'm home, they get a chance to get ready for me. I get ready to be with them. These two worlds that were independent of one another, although we love each other, there's this collision. And we wanted that collision to be soft. And that owner's entry gives us the opportunity to do that. So, I mean, there's a variety of things, Zach, that I can tell you about that, that we do in the thoughtful home. That's just a couple of examples. But it goes on and on and on about where we're going to go in the future of housing, like, you know, what we're doing with glass, what we're doing with, with material sciences, what we're doing with other things to create speed in the field and create an environment that actually would transform people's lives for real. So that's that's... That's what, since 2008, I've been working on. That's fascinating. I literally, quite literally work on it every day. I have like a million questions for you. I think this is, is really, I mean, progressive. I mean, I, I love how you're thinking about the brain and what the brain needs. Like we talk a lot about, like when we were designing our office, it's a side note, we we're trying to figure out how to create a sense of entry that mm -hmm. creates excitement about the, about the work. And that's, I mean, it's in a, in a commercial setting, but I think mm -hmm. it's really interesting. The... The question I have, and I think this is interesting, if you look at like the market right now, like the housing market's incredibly hot. Like I was on a, yeah. I listened to a list of, I don't know, four or five builders recently, basically gloating over the fact that they can charge whatever they want for a home and people are going to buy it. Because there's, I mean, we are literally at the lowest amount of available housing in the market ever. Yep. I mean, a, a healthy market has what, a million homes? And what do we have? Yeah, 250? A million, million four. Yeah. Yeah. And we're like, what, 250? Yeah. And so- I'm not saying that to disagree with you. I'm always looking at, well, what's, you know, here's where we are today. Where are things headed? I guess to you, like, where do you see things changing? And then on top of that, what should building product manufacturers be thinking about to ensure that they're not just capitalizing on the demand today, but they're ready for what might be ahead? Yeah, great questions. Here's a couple of things. This is my hypothesis, and it's certainly supported by other thought leaders in the industry. 
that the spark to the housing boom was the global shutdown and shelter in place orders. Houses are not designed for people to live in them together for 24 hours a day. They are not. We know we're going to sleep there. We know we're going to eat there and then we're going to be gone for most of the day. We're certainly not going to be there together. And so the kid of parts works. It's a shelter. It's a place I go home to. It's a place, you know, on the weekends, you know, it's a different kind of environment because there's always something going on. And there's two kinds of conditions. You know, I can't wait to leave this house. And then I get out in the real world and I can't wait to get home. I mean, it's kind of these two binary thoughts, right? But to have to be there all the time and then, oh, by the way, let's make it even worse. Let's school at home. And then let's work at home at the same time. And I can't go to the store, so my groceries they even have to be delivered to me. I never get to leave. And they realize how much they hate their house. Yep. And anything, anything new will make them feel better. And so they're like, I got to get out of here. I need more space. Problem is, that's all they're going to get is more of the same thing. It's just bigger. And they think that's going to solve the problem. They're not going to, they're going to learn later. It's not going to transform them. Plus, you know, they get new carpet and new appliances and it feels new. After about six months, if you track satisfaction curves of, of home buyers going through the process of what I'll call these euphoric moments at closing where they love you and everything you do to six months later going, I hate you and I never want to see you again, <laughs> is manifested in, in a data cut that I, I heard from one of the, the CEOs of one of the largest home builders in the country. The way it's been manifested is instead of buying a new home, I would rather go out and buy a used car because I didn't enjoy the experience and I ultimately didn't get what I wanted. Now, housing solving that. I work with some of the best builders and thought leaders in the country and they're making that buying and owning experience much more fruitful and dynamic and rewarding but i still make the case that i pretty much got the same house i just had it's just bigger none of it transformed me and they're going to come to the same conclusion and there's some things that aren't going to change as a result of covid and you know my crystal ball has not worked in any downturn and I shake it and I put new batteries in it and it's still not working. But there are some predictions I think that, that I can make that will come true. And here's why. In 2018, 5% of the world population was working remotely. In 2019, it was 15%. That's an exponential, you know, an order, orders of magnitude rise in the work remote platform. So the world was already ready. The promise of the technology was there. We just didn't believe it. And we thought... It doesn't feel normal to do that, so we're not going to do it. And then we were forced to it to finally figure out that normal wasn't so good. We actually mm, weren't very productive. Right. <laughs> In fact, we were incredibly ineffective. The data cut from neuroscientists will tell you that human beings in the workplace are effective for a stunning nine minutes a day. It's insane, right? It's insane. Human beings are incredibly ineffective, particularly in a work environment. So that is not going away. I mean, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of companies all over the world saying we are never going back. Certainly not that way. We're one of them. We will not go back. I mean, we, we took our staff in early April of 2020 and sent them all home because I didn't want to wait until the shelter-in-place orders actually were imposed on me. I'm like, okay, if this is common, let's just be ahead of it. You know, the way to, to win a, a fight is to have a good offense. And so we said, we're just going to go. We're going to beat everybody there. We're going to be the bright light in the industry, and we're going to make sure our clients' needs are met because we're going to be used to this. We're going to make this normal as fast as possible. So that's the first thing that's going to change is that work for remote, learn for remote is not going away. Now, here's the, here's the kind of the other problem with the brain 
<laughs> is, is in 5,000 years, it has not changed. Now, 5,000 years ago, you and I were sitting in a conversation. Our first thought wouldn't be, you know, hey, let's have a conversation about innovation and housing. It would be don't die. <laughs> uh, find food and make more of me. That would be it. Um, and the most powerful one is that fear component in this need for space and this need to scan, this need for security and this need for separation in community. So, you know, human beings need space. They need places to get away. So everything we're doing in housing right now and what housing in the future will be is you better design spaces in your houses. We've been creating it with the concept of the pocket office or this place where kids could do their homework. What wasn't on the kitchen table was actually designed in 1999. Introduced it to a very large home builder in about 2009 and every one of their homes had a pocket office. Pulte Homes was a client in 2009. They called them the Pulte Planning Centers because they wanted to own the name. Now, how do you pull that off in a production housing environment? And the answer is carefully. And you've got to do it in a way where people can still afford to build the house and make money on it. So can you do it? And the answer is, yeah, you, and I'm doing it right now. We're doing it all over the country with very select clients. So where does that lead us to, you know, manufacturers and home builders and, and, and things like that, cracking the code to speed? And why is speed important to me? Well, there's another platform BSB just created. We call it performance-based design. And performance-based design's inherent foundation is to answer this question. If you could build twice as many homes in half the time with the same labor force, what would be different and better? It's a good question. So, yeah, we build 3 million houses, same condition, knowing that it's not going to happen in a factory. I mean, I'll be, the, I'll be the first advocate to tell you, hey, I love what those guys are doing at Clayton. I, they're a stunning company. Katera, Terra, all those guys. We're too big. Country's too big. We're, we're, you know, and you can panel build. Panel build is not new. We're going to have to figure this out in the dirt. We're going to have to figure out how we're going to still throw a bunch of two-by-fours on the ground and assemble buildings. And it starts with a fundamental belief that precision leads to speed. You have to design buildings with precision, which leads to speed. Speed leads to productivity and leads to assembling homes, not constructing them. And we need to apply materials, not attach them. You know, there's a phrase used in the, in, in the field. That, you know, I was out there with framers and, you know, the story of my father. And, you know, the phrase that the framers would use when I was out there with them is, you know, we're not out here building pianos. You know, let's go. Yeah. Well, I make the case you need to be assembling pianos. And that in performance-based design, what we're doing is we're not creating a set of construction documents. We're creating a set of assembly documents that each piece, every piece of material could be pre-designed, pre-manufactured, pre-cut, pre-numbered, and you'd put together buildings in the site, on-site, with unskilled labor because it's paid by numbers. This piece goes here now first. Every piece of material from the supply chain with this trade partner group is delivered to the site in bundles, delivered on the site in the location where it's going to be erected, and then it's assembled. It's interesting. That could happen today. Yeah, it could. Absolutely. So the material science side for me is how do you make assembling these pieces go faster? Because, you know, and if you could start with how would I make it more precise, that would lead to speed. Speed would lead to, to solving the problem of building twice as many in half the time. Everyone wins. Now we've offset the demand side with the proper supply side and price goes down. You know, I'm, I'm not an economist, but I get supply demand. I mean, the reason we got a price, you know, situation is there's just not enough supply. 
And we have no way of improving it. Now, there's all other reasons why this is hard, you know, <laughs> supply chain reasons or labor reasons, but it still stems from the fact that we construct buildings, we don't assemble them, and we don't think about designing them to be assembled, we design them to be constructed, and it ha- we have to start over. I'll give you an example of, of what we call moonshot thinking. If you wanted to make a, a, a regular eight-cylinder engine go 80 miles on a gallon of gas, you can do that. You want to make it go 800 miles on a gallon of gas, you have to start over. If we're going to crack the code to affordability, precision, and speed in the housing world, which I want to be part of, I want to be part of helping crack that code to affordability, we have to start over, and it starts how we design the buildings and who we're designing them for. That's great. So that's how I, that's how I would answer that question. Dan, man, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been fascinating. <laughs> I'm like, you're like changing my perspective on a lot of different parts of the housing market and how the process should work. For people who want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to connect? Not, unfortunately, I'm not a person of few words, so be careful if you call me. <laughs> I, qu- quite literally, I would welcome you know, two forms of communication. My email is dswift at bsbdesign.com, so that's easy. But I would take a text or a call on my cell phone, which is 702-884-2386. I love talking about housing. I love sitting with people trying to innovate housing and the opportunity is so big to crack this code. The phrase we use at the BSB innovation lab is, is we call it tipping the avalanche. And what we mean by that is what problem facing your business or your industry once solved would tip the avalanche that has been sitting there all along. Yep. This, this cascade of opportunity, this cascade of, of transformation is sitting right here. Someone just has to tip the avalanche. Excellent. Man, again, yeah, thank you so much for coming to the show. And for our listeners, make sure you you call Dan or text him, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. Again, thank you so much. And if you want more great content like this, go to venvio.com slash podcast. Until next time, I am Zach Williams. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>